Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now rams have one timeout left it's second and nine for jared golf and the lions bring five golf's gonna throw and it's caught by saint brown for a first down timeout remember that guy the show where we minor memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks i am one of your hosts james winner of as many playoff games in detroit as one matthew stafford it's an incredible achievement diaz back with you once again we're with a very special guest, though. He was the previous Detroit Lions quarterback before Jared Goff to win a playoff game in Detroit. He may or may not exist, but he is our very special guest. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, you know, I did use a time machine to do that. We're not going to get into the details of how I made that work or why I was erased from the history books when they figured out that I was a time traveler. But I am happy for the city of Detroit. Except for Michigan fans. They've now gotten too happy over the past week, and I think it's dangerous to their health. You know, the problem with trying the Airbud rule with time traveling, when you say, look, there's no rule against it, is someone will inevitably travel back in time and make it so that there is a rule against it. But Xavier, it is delightful to have you. And and I agree, Michigan is definitely getting a, a little uppity, but hopefully there's something a little bit more positive making memories for you than the... I will say, still at this point, deserved optimism from the area of Detroit. I just need to say real quick, you had a opportunity there to make a youper pun, James, and you missed it. I did. I Golly, you you're it. absolutely correct. We, we hold each other accountable. That's why we're here. But yes, I, I don't mean to interrupt. Xavier, what's, uh, what's rattling around in that hippocampus of yours? So, before I get into soccer stuff, I did just see something that was really fascinating. TCU women's basketball earlier today canceled their next two games against number seven, Kansas state and against number 24, Iowa state. And all they said was result of injuries within the TCU program and ensure the health and safety of the program student athletes. Both contests will count as a forfeit. Fans who purchase tickets to Wednesday's game against Kansas state, a very big game may exchange them for tickets to any remaining home game based on availability. No refunds will be issued. So in their most recent game against Houston, which was played four days ago as of recording, they had nine players play in that game. Ten players, one tore their ACL early in that game, but the other nine played the rest of that game. As far as everyone is aware, the remaining nine were fine after the end of that game, but apparently something has happened and they cannot get players for the next two games. It's gotten to the point where... I believe, yes, TCU Women's Basketball, the official account, posted TCU Women's Basketball will hold open tryouts on Thursday and Friday for full-time students interested in walking on for the remainder of the 2023-24 season. So, damn. Nobody knows what's happened with those nine players that played the last game that are still healthy as far as we know. And now people are concerned, is there some deeper thing here are the players refusing to play for some reason? 
and they're now trying to get unsuspecting students just to fill out their roster. Trying to turn kids into scabs? I mean, all of your lead up, I was thinking like, okay, this is like an easy, obvious answer that they just don't want to say because they're a Texas school. Like, they all got COVID. COVID, yeah. They got COVID. They're going to, two games falls in line with like that kind of timeline. You know, you're seven to 10 days. But the fact that they're having open tryouts, that is a hair in the ointment. That's the thing, right? A fly in the soup. I'm going to say, I'm going to say a terrible thing that like I might just delete from this episode. It's entirely possible. Uh, knowing a good number of uh, friends I grew up with who attended Christian schools, either all girls, all guys, whatever it is, could also have a mass pregnancy going on. <laughs> of all of the players. What if this is the other side of the Brandon Davies BYU coin? And all these girls are just out here <laughs> fucking and they're not allowed to play basketball anymore. <laughs> and it's really just that simple. They, yep. they are the horny frogs. Yes, I know that's not actually their name. <laughs> Listeners, if I find out an update, I will let you know in, in the next episode. But for now, that that's just a very interesting uh, thing. But that's not the main thing that I wanted to talk about, because we have currently two major international soccer competitions. And these are the ones that don't get as much play in the Western world, because it's the Asian Cup and AFCON. I love these tournaments because they're massive shit shows where anything can happen. Like, if people think CONCACAF is weird, you have not seen anything until you've watched AFCON or the Asian Cup. So, let's start with AFCON. So, this year's AFCON, which is called the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations, despite being in 2024, is held in the Ivory Coast. And it is held in the Ivory Coast because in November of 2018... CAF stripped Cameroon from hosting the 2019 edition because of inability to get everything on track. So they gave it to Egypt. But the former president of CAF requested, let's not really screw over Cameroon. Let's let Cameroon have 2021. But they had already given 2021 to Ivory Coast. So they said, okay, Ivory Coast, you can have 2023. But they'd already given 2023 to Guinea. So they gave Guinea 2025 which is now going to be held in Morocco because they stripped it from Guinea. But the 2023 AFCON that was given to Ivory Coast, they then realized... So, first, they wanted to have this in the summer to better line up with European the European club calendar. Uh, they then realized there's no way to do this in July because of the rainy season in Ivory Coast. It will destroy everything. So they said, okay, never mind. This has to happen in 2024. But we've already sold the sponsorship rights, so it has to be called the 2023 African Cup of Nations. So it's just like the Tokyo Olympics. Yes, pretty much. This is in the Ivory Coast. And so far, there have been... Some very wild results just in the first week of the tournament. Nigeria coming in with possibly the greatest front line in all of international football right now. They have like seven strikers who have double-digit goals in top five leagues. It's ridiculous how good they are. Well, they drew their first game to Equatorial Guinea, who is 43 spots below them in the FIFA rankings. Egypt, which has the best player in Africa, Mo Salah, 
drew 2-2 to Mozambique, which is 80 spots below them. And they only got that draw because they got a very soft penalty in the 97th minute, the last minute of stoppage time. Ghana lost to Cape Verde when a defender and the goalie collided with each other in the last minute and the ball squirted out to a wide-open Cape Verde player to just put it in the back of the net with a tap-in. Angola, who was ranked 117th, tied Algeria, who was ranked 30th. Namibia, who was 115th and had never won a single AFCON game before, beat number 28 Tunisia, the highest-ranked the, the highest ranked African, African country on FIFA rankings. And Cameroon only drew Guinea 1-1. This is five upsets that in most other tournaments, based on just FIFA and ELO rankings, would be considered the biggest upset in decades. And it's all happened in the first week. I just love AFCON. You never know what's going to happen. Andre Onana, who is the goalkeeper of Cameroon and Manchester United, missed that first game with Guinea because he had tried to get permission to stay and play one extra game with Manchester United first. And then he said, but I'll still be there for the game the next day. I'll fly in and he got stuck while traveling. And when responding to criticism about why he wasn't there for the first game, because he really wanted to just play for his club, he said, my country comes first. That's why I'm here. Let people continue to criticize me. I'm used to it. I do what is good for my country. And everyone's response were, your country clearly didn't come first because you begged them to let you stay longer, and then you missed the opening game. I think we just continue to, we are at a golden time in the world for getting away with things just by continuing to say shit until people forget about the shit that you said two weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it, it's not great, but hey, if he leads Cameroon on a deep run, people will forget about it eventually. But for now, everyone's very confused as to what, why they're doing that. But moving from the African continent, to the Asian continent. I also love the Asian Cup. One of the things that kind of saddens me about the Asian Cup is that because of the massive influx of oil money, the games are pretty much only played in the Gulf now. So for context, in the five tournaments from 92 to 2007, we had one in Japan, one in the UAE, one in Lebanon, one in China, and then one combined Southeast Asian tournament in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. Since then, we had Qatar in 2011, Australia in 2015, the UAE in 2019, Qatar again this year, and Saudi Arabia is, is next in the list of 2027. So it's pretty much just Gulf states and maybe Australia every once in a while that can afford to host this, which famously is sad. Asian Australia. Like, I know why they do it. I know the soccer yeah. reason why they do it, but famously Asian Australia. Yes. So it's, it's very disappointing for all of the other parts of Asia that don't really get a chance to host anymore just because they can't afford it. But the Asian Cup is cool because they have 24 teams in, which is a very significant amount for a confederation of that size. And that means we get teams like Tajikistan, which is making its Asian Cup debut. The Kyrgyzstan Republic, which is making its second. Palestine is playing in this tournament for the third time. Lebanon. There's some very interesting teams and they make for some very interesting performances. So earlier today, I was watching China versus Lebanon, which is a fun matchup just to think about. And in that game, 
One of Lebanon's players did kick a Chinese player in the head. It did not get carded or any sort of foul for it. Literally went kung fu flying in to try to kick the ball. Does, but he's so out of control of his body, he kicks him in the face. Like, stud marks in the face. Clear red, but not in Asia laws. Somewhere, recent Hall of Guy inductee Roy Keane is smiling and saying, that's proper football, isn't it? It is proper Asian football. And we're going to have a Tajikistan versus Lebanon match on the 22nd that will decide who makes it out of their group with Qatar and China. So one of Tajikistan and Lebanon has a very good chance of making it to the knockout stages. Like, these groups are just so interesting. Australia, Syria, Uzbekistan, India. Iran, UAE, Hong Kong, Palestine. Japan, Iraq, Vietnam, Indonesia. Jordan, South Korea, Bahrain, Malaysia, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kazakhstan. Like, I'll just point out that with FIFA recognizing Palestine, FIFA now has a better human rights record than Israel. So that doesn't look great for them. There's also something about Hong Kong and Israel being in the same group. Or uh, wow, there's something about Hong Kong and Palestine being in the same group. <laughs> they play each other on the 23rd. If one of them wins, they have a good chance of making it out of the group. So get, stay tuned for the Hong Kong-Palestine match. All of them on CBS Sports and Paramount+. Plus. What if they raise the stakes and like, okay, winner gets to be autonomous. <laughs> <laughs> From the river to the sea, we will make the knockout round. <laughs> winner is autonomous, loser is absorbed. Is a British vassal state again. <laughs> but enough about British vassal states. James, what's been making memories for you? Well, guys, I mean, we're deep in the heart of that football season. We're deep in the heart of our football playoffs. There's snow on the ground outside. And so naturally, my mind is turned to baseball. So it's, there's, there's two fun off-season days that have happened recently. One is the big international free agent signing day. And there's something I want to zero in on in there real quick. It will require some context with the history of basketball in Pittsburgh. Super short. They had one ABA team. It was called the Pipers. Then it went to Minnesota. Then it came back and it was called the Condors. And they were done by 72. But in 1979, there's another very important piece of Pittsburgh basketball culture. And it's a film called The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. And it is about this star player who comes to their team, the Pythons. And that's what keeps them going. And uh, do either of you happen to know who the star of this film is? Matt Mahan. Julius, the doctor, Irving. Thank you very much, Diaz. Indeed, Dr. J stars as Moses Guthrie. And I just wanted to take a moment to point out how, like, a Pittsburgh team in this case recognized it needed to build its culture a little bit, and so it turned to its brother city that doesn't want to acknowledge Philadelphia. The Pirates this week, I think, paid a little bit of homage to that. They had a number of international free agent signings, as all teams did, but there is one specifically that I need to make sure that we've all heard about. Do you guys know what guy I am talking about related to the Pittsburgh Pirates International Free Agents? Do you want perhaps the answer? Oh, we is this Iverson Allen? This is indeed Panamanian prospect Iverson Allen, who is signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Here's the thing that I want to point out about this outfield prospect who's quote unquote 16. Currently, Iverson Allen measures at Six foot zero and 160 pounds. Allen Iverson, while playing in the NBA, six foot zero, 165 pounds. 
I'm just saying I don't think anyone has ever seen the two of them together, and uh, I look forward to their attempt to disprove that. No, I just think Iverson Allen is delightful. Estamos hablando de la practicia. No el realidad? Practicia? No el partido, no el partido. No el partido para lo que yo me muero. <laughs> Um, so yeah, international free agent signing. It's a great day. The Orioles signed a guy named Steven, who spells it S-T-I-V-E-N. Love that, Steven. Um, but another big off-season day, and one that did hit a little closer to home for me, uh, it was the release of the promotional schedules. We know when we get all of our dumb free shit, and the Orioles have some bangers this year. Early on against the A's in the Battle of the Vows, we have the Brandon Hyde Manager of the Year bobblehead. I don't know how you capture the essence of winning 2023 Manager of the Year in the bobblehead, but I'm excited to see. We got a couple good bobbleheads. There is also for the 2023 Rookie of the Year, Gunnar Henderson. We've got one that's like Anthony Santander after this huge walk-off win against the Yankees last year. Strangely enough, it is scheduled against Tampa. Whatever. We have one for Mr. Splash. The Orioles had all of these water-themed celebrations last year, and eventually uh, the organization decided to cash in on that by setting up a specific section in the stadium you could sit in where you would get soaked by a dude wearing a pool floaty called Mr. Splash. So Mr. Splash has a bobblehead now. There's also an Adley Rutschman switch hitting bobblehead, and this is just another one where I don't know what that means, and I'm curious and I look forward to understanding what exactly makes a bobblehead switch hitting. The City Connect jerseys have gotten worked into the Hawaiian shirts and the floppy hats this year because they don't have to keep them a secret. But speaking of jerseys, there's one particular one that I want to focus on. On June 27th, this is the day that I look forward to on Pride Night attending that game. It's going to be a Thursday evening. I will make it a point to be one of the first 10,000 people 15 or older in there so that I can get my Orioles Pride jersey, which I will proudly wear as we open up a four-game set against probably now the third most hated team in the city of Baltimore and the only franchise that does not have their own pride night. The Texas, Rangers. Texas Rangers. Fuck you guys. I cannot wait to be at that game. I hope we boo their miserable asses to hell. I really appreciate when the people behind the scenes in an organization are like just a little bit petty. Like when the Nuggets came in to play the Sixers, they listed their entire starting lineup as questionable. Love Embiid. I can appreciate the joke, and I certainly appreciate the Orioles pulling that one there. I can't decide if it's funnier, if it's intentional or unintentional, but the good news is, either way, the fans will make sure that we treat it intentionally. Uh, fuck the Texas Rangers. I despise that team now. I hate them so very much, and I cannot wait to boo them that evening. In my gay-ass jersey, I will be as flamboyant as I possibly fucking can. When you say gay ass jersey for a Pride Night, I'm just picturing an Orioles jersey, but like with assless chaps on the Oriole. <laughs> we can make this happen. I can make this happen. <laughs> but enough about baseball. Diaz, what's making memories for you? Uh, well, there's two things that I want to talk about. And I guess the first one will start on somewhat more of a down note. You know, I could talk about how right I was about the Eagles for the past month. I could talk about how terrible they were. I could talk about how bad that game was. But I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on instead is the incredible career of Jason Kelsey. There, I don't think you can point to a single player in the history of the Eagles that has resonated with the city more than Jason Kelsey. Like The only one that I can put on his level would be Chuck Bednarik. And the only reason I'm even willing to consider that 
is because I wasn't alive for it. So like maybe Chuck Bednarik, Penn guy, Philly guy, maybe the love affair was a little stronger there. Hey, don't but, forget about Leo Carlin. We had people calling him all over the place just to get tickets. No, I Leo think Carlin, you're correct. I, I do think you're correct about this as an outside observer. And and like, I mean, not to, to sell short, say, a Brian Dawkins. I think Brian Dawkins mm-hmm. probably is the person who held that throne previously. But Jason Kelsey to be, I think, a fifth round pick. It was either fifth or sixth round. Not really thought of to be much of anything, but to come in and in a way kind of like redefine the center position, I feel. Jason it's Kelsey. Bold. It's bold, but we'll allow it. I mean, he, he calls out all of the pass protections. And like, I feel like a lot of centers do that now. And I'm not sure that it was always the case. Maybe Jeff Saturday. And how many Maybe. other centers have been finalists for people's sexiest man, uh, man alive award? How many centers can sing with the beautiful pipes that Jason Kelsey has? How many centers will put on a bedazzled pineapple and scream at the top of the art museum to 100,000 raving Philadelphians curse and etch himself into the history of the city in one beautiful afternoon at that Super Bowl parade. The crazy thing is, he still has not actually confirmed it. And so I still do have like that small little thing in the back of my head. I'm like, he might, he could, but he won't. But Jason Kelsey, first ballot Hall of Fame. If he's not, then like, fuck the Hall of Fame as an institution. I don't respect it anymore if he's not first ballot. He's, he's very, very nice to food service people. He gave his favorite McDonald's attendant apparently today a signed jersey. And I can speak from personal experience. Super fucking nice to food service people. And that means a lot. It's a good barometer. It's yeah, like how you treat service people and if you return a shopping cart to the, uh, the basin in the parking lot. You, you, know, you don't have to. Nobody's going to make you, but you do it of your own volition. Uh, we love Jason Kelsey. Two, as I mentioned on the show before, you know, I, I, I get the chance to work a lot of the Westchester Knicks games. And sometimes some pretty cool people show up there. Last week, Bill Murray showed up. Everybody was dapping him up, trying to say hi, trying to get a picture. And Bill was like very nice to everybody. But for me personally, that wasn't an interaction that struck me to go and have because, you know, this show, we're dedicated to sports sickos. We are sports sickos. So Bill Murray didn't quite tickle my fancy. But when the Cleveland Charge were in town for two games and Zaire Smith strolled into the building, I simply had to say hello. Talked to him for like maybe like two minutes after the game last night. Super cool guy. And if you're wondering who's Zaire Smith and why does Diaz care about him? Zaire Smith was drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers. And just to give the, 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 the very quick clip notes version of his Sixers career. The Sixers traded McCall Bridges for him after interviewing him and his mom on national television saying, how great is it that mom, you work for the Sixers and now McCall gets to stay home. All of that, whatever. Everybody talks about that enough. What they don't talk about is that, that McCall was traded for Zaire Smith and a future first-round pick. And I love the trade because they projected as very much the same player. Just Zaire was like younger and potentially much more athletic. His career did not get off to a good start in Philadelphia. First of all, he fractured his ankle in training camp. So set him behind the eight ball a little bit. He also had a severe allergic reaction to sesame seed oil while on a team flight and nearly fucking died and had to be intubated. 
and lost 50 pounds as uh, as a result of that. It was a long road back. He actually made his G League debut that March, like six months after this traumatic incident where I forget exactly what it was like. It was like a thoracectomy or something like that. Basically, like they had to cut open this dude's throat so that he could breathe and then suffocate to death from his allergic reaction. That's an incredibly fucking gnarly thing to have to go through. But stuck with the Sixers, I think that year and then the next season wasn't quite making the progress that they wanted to see. So they, they released him. That was in 2020. And he has spent the last three years continually rehabilitating playing in a couple summer league teams, but never even getting a G League contract. And finally this year, the Cleveland Charge signed him. He's getting regular minutes for him. He's looking as athletic as he ever was. He's looking as strong, much stronger than he was before. And like he finally now looks like he is able to play basketball. Like It is an incredible thing that he went through. And the beautiful thing about basketball, you know, these... He was drafted in 2019, came out as a freshman out of Texas Tech. He's still only 24 years old. So I think, I think there's still something in that bag. I think there's still something he can do. But Bill Murray was very nice to everybody. Zaire Smith was very nice to me. I love the NBA G League. Go to the G League. Watch the G League. It's very entertaining basketball. There's so many dunks. There's not a lot of defense. But that makes for a good viewing experience. That's Goes the exact same mind. as the All-Star game. All it is is dunks and no defense. Exactly. Just if you want the All-Star game experience and if you want to get, you know, an advanced eye scouting because I feel like I'm burying the lead here. Xavier and I had a trade yesterday in which I got Deuce McBride, who is a very famous Westchester Knicks alumnus. And, you know, like Xavier knew and I knew because we're the kind of guys that pay attention to this shit. And we knew Deuce McBride was going to be good. So Diaz did not mess with me at all. He just sent the offer, and it was Julian Champagne mm-hmm. and a second-round pick for Miles McBride. And I love Deuce. Love him. But Julian Champagne, born and raised in Staten Island, and went to St. John's. So it's two homerisms versus just one of playing for the Knicks. And so I was legally obligated to accept the offer without responding to him at all. Also, I mean, just for further context, we had already set the control room for this game. So, like, I really had nothing to do before the game. So I said in our fantasy chat, I'm like, every member of this league is going to get a trade offer from me. Might be a big one, might be a small one, but you're going to get one. Let me know what you think. Xavier <laughs> Was that the, the only one that took that bit? Another one went through this morning. I traded away Bones Highlands for Quentin Grimes. So I am cornering that young, developing New York Knicks backcourt. One of them is going to be really good. I mean, Grimes is probably going to be traded within the next month, to be honest. And then he's going to get a lot more minutes, and he's <laughs> going to be so much better. And they're both going to thrive. Thank you for telling me how much even better this can go, Xavier. And Diaz tried to get Ben Simmons, but it didn't work. Crocky! 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 It's, it's funny because it's like I've probably five different legitimate trade offers for Ben Simmons over the course of the last three, four years. And like each one of them, obviously, I've offered less. Like the first time, I think it was three first round picks. Then I offered him two. <laughs> then I offered him one in like a, like a shitty player. Then I offered him the eighth pick Just in the rookie the pick player. before this previous draft. And then my most recent offer was, look, you can still get a first for Ben Simmons. You just got to give me a second with him too. 
and he countered by asking for all 14 of the first rounders that I currently own. <laughs> so, so you're so saying I, I, there's a chance. I, for a second, I was like, if he was still the commissioner, I would have accepted it and then made him reverse it because that would have been like the funnier troll. But I'm not going to create more work for our duly installed commissioners who just don't deserve that kind of behavior. Well, to put a bow on that again, G League, it does stand for guys. This is a way to watch guys of the future. And we are going to take a quick step into the future now because, uh, folks, we just don't have time to record a whole episode today. But the good news is we do later this week and you don't have to spend any time waiting as we throw to that segment right now. Well, Xavier and I are back here, and you know, plenty of outlets, they like to keep up a Metro correspondent on the beat. We are very happy to try and stand out in the pack by keeping a Met correspondent, and we are proud to welcome back a friend of the show from that center of the art world, LJ Raider of Art But Make It Sports. Welcome, officially, back to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great to have you back. We spoke with you last year, and we'll back up for a second. Folks, if you did not hear when we spoke with LJ last time and talked about the accounts, Arpa Bigot Sports, he has been doing this on Instagram, on Twitter, now doing it on Blue Sky, where basically he'll pair photos, screenshots, any image you can find from the sports world with selections from what we have learned now is a massive library of photos from just your own visits to museums, ones that you've pulled from the web, and uh, it is sometimes to an uncanny effect. You've been doing this for a while, but uh, you are, I understand, branching out a little bit more beyond that. I am too. Uh, the, it might surprise some people that follow, but the account basically makes no money, which is fine. I kind of just do it for, for the love of the game. There's the occasional kind of partnership and, and collaboration, but... Yeah, for the most part, it's it's very much a, a hobby. I figured maybe it was time to start trying to make some money, but also uh, getting peppered with questions about my process and you know being accused of being AI and that being sort of frustrating. So yeah, decided to start a Substack, and I've also been uh, looking to explore some of the stories of the photographers uh, that take the photos that I use uh, at a deeper level and been writing it for uh, maybe two months now a month and a half and uh, it's been a lot of fun and, and interesting and i really have no idea where it's necessarily going but it has let me kind of branch out a little bit because previously the only voice i really used online was just the images and wouldn't really do much else so yeah well, I'm I'm glad you said that. You literally set me up perfectly for the next question I was going to ask because, like, this was previously, at least in terms of what you were presenting, it was a very sort of objective thing. Here's the image someone tagged me in. Here is the art. And we were just talking before the recording about how you definitely, like, worked a sense of humor into it. Like, you've had the butter-melting Mike McCarthy for these past couple seasons now, and there was a little bit of that hint of personality behind it, but, like, you are now... And, and I'm just curious what it's like putting your own voice now out there. Are you enjoying kind of the exercise of it? Yeah, so I was actually a writer in a, a past life. I don't know if anybody remembers the, I guess, now resurrected Roto World brand, but uh, I used to write the, the news blurbs uh, and some articles on that site back when, I guess I was still in college. Um, I was like an intern there between junior and senior year of college and then got hired as a writer there for a few years and 
funny enough, I told myself I didn't want to keep doing that because I didn't want to just sit in front of a computer without coworkers, and then you know, I work remote and worked remote <laughs> five years uh, and was a writer for NBC Sports and Olympics, the London Olympics. So I covered boxing, fencing, judo, taekwondo, and wrestling, and really had a chance to flex those writing muscles since. So it's been nice to to get back into the game and. To be honest, I try to let at least some of these interviews let the photographers kind of do the talking and just provide platform for for them to tell their stories and then just highlight some things in the art and sports world that I enjoy and I want other people to enjoy. And given the the platform that Substack provides, it's it's nice to you know break it down a little bit versus you know just fire off a, a tweet and, and forget about it. And not to flatter you too much, but like, while I think you absolutely are a large clearing out of the way for a lot of the talks that you've posted with photographers, like your most recent one about the the Bills shot, there was the shot of two fans in a uh, snowy winterscape, and you were able to talk to the like stadium photographer that got that. And I, I think you direct it really well, because I think you pulled out of that what would be inherently interesting to someone that's like already kind of into that in the first place. So just... Hey, give yourself some credit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm doing pretty well, and excited to kind of see where I, where I can take it. I tried doing what you all do and, and record a podcast episode. That is not easy. So kudos to you all. I don't. I have no idea how to do any of the the editing, and it was. It's one thing to be a guest on a podcast, mm-hmm. at least for me, a lot more free flowing and easier to to talk. But when it comes to like being the one responsible for asking questions and you know finding the right words it's it's difficult so kudos to you all i don't know about xavier i will say the secret is having like two people that you like to talk to yeah it's like having just a a plain catch right and a a conversation yeah and i don't have to edit so i get to just leave all that to james yeah, it's it's probably a very different experience for you and diaz uh i do spend like days with it after we finish recording (laughs) But it's fun. It is also a labor of love. It also does not make any money. We're all out here doing what we love to do. And uh, I think that leads me to the last thing I'm kind of curious about, which is, you know, you've got experience writing, but at that point you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but largely doing what we think of as just standard and important sports journalism. And now given that people are coming to you with preconceptions about what it is that you're going to talk about, that it's going to be related to the visual aspects of art, that it's going to be related to the people that are giving us those images and these videos of everything that we watch and take in. Does that change how you watch and take in? Do you look at it from any kind of different angle now, having been in the position to get tagged with images and connect sports to images and art for a while now. And like, does that have an effect on how you just watch it? Not really. Um, So I've worked in sports for my whole career. So sports have already been ruined for me where at least early in my career, it was, I don't even care who wins. I just want the game not to go to overtime so I can, you know, go home. Uh, uh, And pretty desensitized to, athletes in general like you know i've been in locker rooms in different sports and you know met a whole host and it's sort of just the same old now and so you watch sports and i just kind of root for the people that i i like and root for you know the cowboys to lose and and chaos to happen 
and have always sort of looked at sports from an art lens and now it's most of the time if I just see something I'll pause the TV and you know take a screen grab or wait for a handful of accounts that you know do a professional screen grab of moments that I know are going to go viral but it hasn't really changed how I watch and I guess from the like the long form perspective I'm not really doing anything new other than now I just have a a forum to expand out on the things that are already going through my head and that I already care about, which I think is something that uh, I don't know everybody should explore if they have the the chance to, because uh, it is fun to take a deep dive into something, um, you know, as niche as as maybe like sports photography might be. I I enjoy it so very much agree that like people should both interrogate their interests more to get at the heart of like why things are interesting to them and why things are compelling to them that they enjoy either as activities or just uh, things that they take in and, and couldn't agree more that it is fun to kind of curate those experiences for ourselves to dive a little bit deeper. And you are someone that knows a lot about curating, but as I understand it, we are going to potentially curate a spot here in the hall today because I believe there is someone you'd like to add a museum label for. A new guy? I don't know if he deserves it, but at least talk about him. Um, they, they all get a plaque if they make it. So if he makes it, he gets a nice fancy PNG file. He's yeah, I don't know. But we'll see. We'll see what everybody thinks. All right, so I'm nominating Vincente Padilla. I had previously, I think, alluded to him when I talked about Edwin Jackson. I don't remember what the parallel was, but I don't know. I, I think of, when I think back, and it's funny, I guess you think back at a, what kind of person resonates in my mind, and it's like that middle reliever, sometimes starter, guy that, you know, helped his team out, helped multiple teams out, but you know, maybe had a flash one year, uh, and then somehow just kind of carved out a career. Uh, I guess the new, what, the new Mets manager, like Ramiro Mendoza, like that kind of guy um, that just managed to stick around for a while. So, and I think there's some interesting things with Vincente Padilla in looking through his uh, Wikipedia page and his, his online presence that uh, I think are funny and that we can uh, can chat about. Well, yeah, because I, I know a little bit about the pitcher Vicente Padilla. I have pulled up his B-Ref page real quick, and let's just get one thing out of the way. He has exactly a 100 ERA plus, which if you are any pitcher putting up any sustained career and you finish with that, you have immediately gotten uh, an excellent starting. There's also exactly one black ink on his entire B-Ref page. In 2006, the Texas Rangers, he threw exactly 200 innings, but that's not what he got the black ink for. Anyone want to take a guess what he led the league in that season? Walks. Even You're better. on the right track. Hit batters, yes. <laughs> Hit batsman with 17, which was a career high, though he did top 15 four different times. Also, looking at his reference page, is this right? So for a majority of his, let me just sum it up. Mm -hmm. It's from, from his rookie season up until the age of 31. The first 10 years of his career, he had a... 3.2 walks per nine and a 6.2 strikeouts per nine, but not good. And then somehow in, in the final three seasons, 2.6 walks and 8.4 strikeouts per nine, he like got better. Oh yeah, he's throwing like almost a strikeout in an inning those last two years. 
those are both career highs out of nowhere. Yeah. He's got one all-star appearance. <laughs> he has one all-star appearance. Diaz, unfortunately, not with us tonight because he's once again doing some good work for the G League. But I don't think we have to worry about Diaz's vote on this because his one all-star appearance was in 2002 with the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, some of his best seasons here with the Phillies. I think we know exactly how Justin Diaz would feel about this gentleman. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I guess, kind of a Phillies legend in, in some capacity. Philly's legend Vicente Badia, no question. No question. Fees, I guess we have to do the, the AA for the Phillies as well if we're doing Padilla. I don't think you can pronounce that in English, James. The double A? Well, they also don't have PH in Spanish, so like all of this is not real. <laughs> the lead has been buried here, though, in that one of the things that makes a guy being from a country that does not usually produce players for that sport. I looked it up. There have been 15 ever MLB players from Nicaragua. And Vicente Padilla is not the best, but he's widely considered the second best. Second best MLB player from a country that does not produce MLB players is such a guy stat that you could have, a guy piece of trivia. And I love that very much. There's some funny names on that list, too. there's There's some guys on that list. Well, there's one that I like because I love Johnny Lasagna uh, for the Yankees. Everest Cabrera, remember him? He was like a fun little, fun little player. He wasn't really good at anything but being fast. But... Erasmo Ramirez. Ooh, Jonathan Loisaga, who is still active. Love that. Yeah, that's, John, that's Johnny Lasagna. Everyone just calls him Lasagna because they don't want to pronounce his last name. I, I guess I give more credit to, to my rivals. I tried to be able to pronounce the name of the pitchers that perform it's, well against us. I mean, us. It's, it's Loisaga. I know how to pronounce it, but New Yorkers are not going to say that. Fair enough. Arvin Bernard? Anyways. But yeah, I mean, these, this is the career of Vicente Padilla, uh, but you've alluded to there being some extracurricular activities, and I'm fully unaware of anything outside of just the player of Vicente Padilla, so I'm excited to learn. Yeah, so... He's believed to be the first major U.S. athlete to contract swine flu, which he got in <laughs> July of 2009. I like how he can laugh at his uh, his medical uh, shortcomings. Uh, so yeah, he got swine flu, and then later that year was DFA'd by the Rangers. It wasn't very good. He was 8-6 and six with a 4.92 ERA, but uh, it was released because he was regarded as a disruptive clubhouse presence. So I think that probably was uh, maybe tied to some of his anger issues and his his hits batsman. Uh, I think he finished his career it's his 70th all-time and, and hit batsman, uh, which is pretty impressive. There's some more, too. Was this also in 2009? So in August, he was released because he was disruptive. In November of that same year, he was accidentally shot in the leg at a shooting range in Nicaragua, it wasn't a serious injury, apparently. I don't know if somebody deliberately shot him or if, like, tied to the fact that he was a disruptive presence. But, yeah, he had a hell of a 2009. Maybe maybe that's what got... And then 2010 is when he started picking it back up. So, had his best career season. So, maybe he just needed to, to get some of that anger out of him. He finally had someone, you know, thrown at him, giving him the high heat. And he's like, yeah, maybe I need to step back from this a little bit. Because, like, this, this Wikipedia page, which I've also pulled open now, 
seems to apply that a lot of those 2006 hit by pitches that he led the league with were very much intentional. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he's an angry guy. And if you look at his pictures online, first off, he's not not really a looker, but he looks pissed off in, in a lot of his uh, his photos. I looked I went, up that shooting incident. Apparently, his agent originally claimed that he was just grazed in the leg, and they told the Dodgers, don't worry. But then when he came back for spring training, he's like, yeah, it shot me right clean through the thigh. Uh, I lost a liter and a half of blood, and they had to rush me to the hospital. Uh, my friend accidentally shot me while he was trying to fix my gun. And <laughs> guess what? He healed up enough to be the opening day starter for the Dodgers. <laughs> It must not have been good. So was that that was 2010? And no, that's like the beginning of this current Dodgers dynasty. If I'm not mistaken, I believe they win their you know first of many, many NL Wests at that point. That's when they start running it off every fucking year. Uh 2008, 2009, they had won it, and then they do take a couple years off. My apologies. Yeah, they, they were below 500 that year. So yeah. not, not a great team. There are some, like it's a 22-year-old Clayton Kershaw. Chad Billingsley was okay. Ted Lilly, the yeah, yes, he, he was the opening day starter. That's a star. Look up the 2010 Dodgers season on Wikipedia and look at the first heading because you, I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. Please just do that. Okay, let's see what we got here. I think I'm looking at the right thing. First heading. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the the Frank McCourt divorce proceedings. Yeah, the Frank McCourt divorce proceedings. Uh, <laughs> the very first thing. He fired his wife as CEO of the Dodgers, claiming she was guilty of insubordination and inappropriate behavior. So I Wild think that thing. Dodgers team was maybe a bit of a shit show that deserved having Vicente Padilla as their opening day starter. Did you see further up? It says Jamie had an affair with an employee and that returning her to the team would be an improper interference in team matters. And yet he, so I just want to question the strategy here by Frank McCord, because Jamie then on October 27th is the one to file divorce papers. I, I don't know what you think was going to happen when you fired your wife. I just feel like if you work with your wife and you fire her, you should probably include divorce papers with that. There's some, there's uh, some also guys on this list. Ronnie Belliard. I haven't thought about him in a Russell Martin, starting catcher. Andre Ethier, Matt Kemp, James Loney. Ooh, Raphael for call is the one that it's making memories for me. Just think about Raphael for call. Had a pretty good opening day lineup. For call, Russell Martin, Ethier, Manny, Kemp, Loney, Casey Blake. Blake. We've got uh, Orioles legend George Sherrill down there, longtime closer. Uh, you do have Kenley Jansen already on this team, along with Hiroki Kuroda. We do also have all-timer for Immaculate Grid. Octavio Dotel is on this roster. And Xavier Paul, I feel like he was the guy that every year, the first week, crushed it, and then you like didn't hear from him again for the rest of the season. Oh, Orioles legend Jay Gibbons. God, there's some good Orioles legends on here. Jay Gibbons was a big steroid guy, right? I mean... <laughs> If you want to say, like, he did a lot of steroids, it feels weird to call a guy that ultimately <laughs> wasn't that successful a big steroids guy. Like, that's really what it is. The steroids didn't do enough for him. Like, his steroids usage to war ratio is atrocious. I think I'm I'm thinking of him as a big steroid guy because he just he had a look to him. Yeah, oh, yeah. he looked like he did roids, 100%. <laughs> 
I did not know. Like I, I was probably what uh, about twelve when Jay Gibbons was playing with the O's, and I didn't know a whole lot about steroids. But something about Jay Gibbons' body did not look correct. <laughs> yeah, he's got a weird face too. But I've just been born that way. <laughs> now, if we're gonna talk about just like classic <laughs> guy boxes that Padilla checks off he does have two more that i think are good feathers in your cap to kind of build that overall score he does have some time with the nippon league plays with the soft bank hawks though right before the soft bank hawks start rattling off their dynasty if i'm not entirely mistaken literally right before he if he had stuck around he could have been part of the team that wins six of the next seven japan series but no he does retire after just that one year with the hawks he did also all throughout his career apparently have pretty regular usage of an EFIS. And I love me a good 50 mile an hour obeying the interstate highway speed limit EFIS pitch. Yeah, and I guess he... <laughs> I wonder how many batters he hit with that EFIS pitch. I think he was well, probably as you said, the 70th all-time. <laughs> so close. If he could have got... How many more did he need to become the 69th all-time? <laughs> see. Everyone checks baseball reference and there is a silence in the podcast. Oh, I'm and getting to Okay, there is oh my goodness, there is the a three-way tie for 69th. We've got Pedro Estacio, phenomenal. Then we have two active pitchers, well-known pitchers, and also tied with Vicente Padilla. And these are, by the way, he's now at 72 behind these guys, all tied. He is also tied with a very, very notable current pitcher. Folks, we've got Chris Sale and Max Scherzer tied with Astacio at 69, and Justin Verlander tied with Padilla at 109 all-time. I thought Verlander would be higher. He's got some time. He's got some time. So Chris Sale, at the age of 34, and like Chris Sale's not going to pitch that much longer, but Chris Sale is really up there. He is third all-time for active pitchers if we go by age compared to Max Scherzer, only behind Johnny Cueto and Charlie Morton. 12th all-time with 168. Charlie, do get one more, please. Sale is also much closer to um, to Padilla in terms of innings, where it's almost 1,600 versus 1,800, but Verlander has pitched over twice as many innings as Padilla. So he has a lot of hits, insane. but his rate is half of it. Yeah, he's crazy, but he's not a dick the way Chris Sale is. Chris Sale's going to do so well in Atlanta. He's so well-suited to the Atlanta team. If you had also brought up the Nicaragua, right? How, how he was the second best player ever. It looks like so. Dennis Martinez, the best mm-hmm. ever, and he was mentored by Dennis Martinez before he signed as a international free agent to start his career. So it was like the passing of the torch in in Nicaragua. I mean, this page is also just like it. It is littered with dudes. He's part of the Kurt Schilling trade. He is tied up with like AJ Pierzynski. He has a couple different mentions because of his Rangers time with Orioles legends, Kevin Millwood and Scott Feldman. So this is just an excellent page to go through that line with Kevin Millwood and Scott Feldman is two lines before the swine flu one that you mentioned. And then and above, that, and uh, above that, yeah, above is, that is, uh, is, he also has a history of hitting former teammate Mark Teixeira. <laughs> Teixeira got Which, hit a lot. Well, I guess I don't know how the two of you stand for that. I feel great about that. Hey, Teixeira, he came in, he won a title, he did what he had to do, did get hit a lot. Yankees always get players that get hit a lot. 
probably intentionally. I but. look, I'll just say Mount St. Joe High School produces a lot of very hittable people. <laughs> and then of course it mentions that he is regarded as a disruptive clubhouse presence. So I guess I, I think that is the fly in the ointment for me with Padilla. I really do enjoy the resume here. I think it's a phenomenal resume. Are we as a whole worried about bringing in this disruptive clubhouse presence? Do we think that there's been enough growth? Uh, like, do we think that Padilla can come in here and not just raise shit? I mean, he was signed two weeks later by another team and then stayed three years with that team. I, I, I think enough people were probably like, nah, it's fine. He, he's all right. It'd be one thing if his career ended because of that. And it's like, yeah, everyone knows this guy's a dick. But he still had another three to four years after that happened. Plus, it's Texas. Maybe he just didn't like Texas. Would not be the first person. This is actually true. Maybe I should count it as a point in his favor that he is disliked by the Texas Rangers organization. Like trying to find out what Vincente Padilla has done recently. And he's completely off the map. Yeah, what's he up to? Maybe he's just the richest man in Nicaragua right now and just owns like a third of the country just doing his own thing. He made a lot of money in his career, I bet. He definitely got some contracts. Total earnings. We have uh, at least, Jesus, at least $51.5 million. Yeah, fuck. There is a digital creator with the same name, but it's not him. There's a Vincente Padilla Jr. That looks like not his kid. <laughs> Here's... I'm going to message Vincente Padilla Jr. and ask him if <laughs> a senior is doing Oh, wait. It is. He's got a... That's him in the middle. That's him. In okay, the middle. so we have a relative of Vincente Padilla here on social media, at least. Yeah. He looks, he looks great. Mm. <laughs> He's just enjoying his life. A family man. Let him yeah. let him be happy. All right. We are as a guy bunal at a slight disadvantage because we do not have our full strength. But I want to before I say where I'm leaning at the end. I want to make the case one more time that I think this is a no-brainer for Justin Diaz because we've got this guy starts out early in his career at Arizona, twelve in the bullpen, gets the trade to Philly, spends a year in the bullpen with Philly, and he's fine, and then. They move him to the rotation. That first year in the rotation doesn't miss a single start. Makes his only all-star appearance. Clearly a Phillies legend. Goes on to a couple more years. Sure, fine, whatever. Goes away. And then in 2009, this is, I think, the real reason that Diaz is like 100%. Because we've got sleeper agent Vicente Badia. He makes it there to the Dodgers in 2009 and does help them out in the NLDS. But that's just so that he can be there on the mound to fall on the sword in the 2009 NLCS against our Philadelphia Phillies because he apparently is the one to give the final runs in the deciding game of that NLCS that sends the Phillies to their second straight World Series. The two of you can now be happy about how that World Series goes for a second. We move. And he gets shot in the leg a month later. And then he gets shot in the leg <laughs> accidentally. Um. Which is, I, I think now we realize that that is the Dodgers sending a message that you are, you are with us now. You can no longer serve the people of Philadelphia. And you know what? Clearly fences were mended over that year and he came out as the opening day starter. And if that's the case for Diaz, I think seeing that, okay, he, he can take that discipline from the Dodgers. 
He can be that opening day starter initially, and then he can have a graceful transition in those last two years to the bullpen, can gracefully move on to NPB for a year. He's he's accepting those limitations. I'm going to choose to say that even though he was clearly a disruptive clubhouse presence earlier, the ability to show that growth on the field speaks well to, I think, his ability to just show overall growth. And so if, if we've taken away those character concerns and we're just looking at the body of work, I think there's no question that I, I know how I'm voting. We know how Diaz is voting. Xavier, how do you feel about Vicente Padilla? So I have to add one more thing mm-hmm. that I just found. Do either of you remember Edison Volquez? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The Reds. Royals guy who like passed away sadly, but also was an asshole. So I just learned that one time in spring training when he was coming up through the Rangers organization, uh, as a rookie, he was told that he had to cut his dreadlocks to conform with uh, the Rangers minor league policy. And previously, Vicente Padilla and Joaquin Benoit had told him he's got he's to cut his hair because they just didn't like it. So he went up to them and was like, how much will you give me if I cut my hair? And eventually got them each to give him 600 bucks to cut his hair full well knowing that he had to do it anyway with them totally unaware that he, he was going to be required to do it. And after they found out, he refused to pay them back. Money in hand. That's Where did, that, where did you find that? Kind of awesome. How did you dig that up? You know what? Sometimes you just got to search Vicente Padilla and then team name and then just see as far back as you can find. And you can find some interesting stuff. There could be so much more Vincente Padilla lore that we just don't even know about. Yeah, I mean, it's... There's Mark everywhere. There's plenty that we haven't talked about that is available. Stuff like he got a bronze medal for Nicaragua at the Baseball World Cup, the precursor to the WBC. And his first game, he gave up three runs without getting a single out. So he had an infinity ERA after his first ever MLB appearance. Probably the most inauspicious start you can have as a pitcher in baseball. And then went on to have a 13-year MLB career. The good news is, it sounds like, Xavier, we will have plenty of time to remember all those things. Uh, would, would you like to do the honors in Diaz's absence this time? Ooh, okay. You're hitting me with, with this uh, out of the blue. I'm not, I wasn't sure if I'm ready. But you know what? It is our honor to bring in the second best Nicaraguan pitcher of all time, Phillies legend, Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks legend, man who loved to hit batters and try to avoid getting shot by his friends. Please welcome to the wonderful Hall of Guy, Vicente Padilla. Bienvenidos a nuestro amigo Vicente Padilla. Welcome to the Hall and I, I think Vicente Padilla owes a debt of gratitude to you, LJ, for bringing him up today. This is uh, an excellent guy to remember. And I guess thank, thank you for voting him in, because if he didn't get in, he might come after me. And, you know. There's also like the slightest amount of intimidation. I mean, he can find all three of us, and he's got friends who are willing to shoot even their own friend, let alone us. I, I don't know if we could have you know, put all of our safeties in jeopardy like that. <laughs> Hey, speaking of unceremonious shootings, uh, ends, you know, however you <laughs> want to phrase it, 
There's been some unfortunate news that came out today. And given that we were going to be here with a, a guest who's very, you know, tapped into the visual iconography of sport nowadays, it felt appropriate that we take a moment to acknowledge what seems like more or less the death knell of Sports Illustrated. I don't know if either of you two have like a particular memory about it that stands out to you. I just want to take a second to say that like I what was so great about it, you know, I never had a subscription to it because neither of my parents were into that and I didn't know how to get like magazine subscriptions when I was a kid, but there was something about every once in a while when you came across a Sports Illustrated, you would get to like learn about some aspect of sport that you had never heard about before. And uh, it is what I owe my Spurs fandom to, because I remember very vividly being in a doctor's waiting room for an appointment with my dad one time and just reading this delightful profile on Tim Duncan. And it made him my favorite player of all time, still is, and, and maybe the Spurs fan that I'm today. And I would just want to take a moment to acknowledge that Chris Ballard wrote an excellent profile there. But it's Sports Illustrated. It is about the images. And I want to take a second to acknowledge the photographers for that, too, because they are all credited. We've got John W. McDonough, Greg Nelson, and uh, Rich Pedron. Sorry, Pedroncelli. Pedroncelli. Sorry. That is uh, uh, one that was broken up by the kerning on its website, maybe showing some of the cracks that the Sports Illustrated website has been having for a little bit. But the image from this that I will always think of that first picture I saw of Tim Duncan of him just cradling the basketball in front of his face. That was like the first time I ever saw a picture of Tim Duncan. That's the first image of him that ever came into mind. And it is the enduring image. And uh, I appreciate Sports Illustrated for putting that on. And for so many of the articles that we have used to build out, like I'll, I'll tell you, Flo Hyman and Vinko Bogate, two guys that I have brought up on this show who without Sports Illustrated Vault, I would have had no way to like write good length presentations on those guys. I mean, I had a Sports Illustrated subscription growing up for most of my childhood, so I'll always remember it. And, you know, I think of the sad tweets, my favorite has been from Leander Sherlackens, who does a lot of soccer writing uh, for Yahoo and other places. He tweeted, Sports Illustrated's model was really very simple. One, employ one to four of the best writers in every sport. Two, let them cook. Three, charge people to read what they wrote. It's insane that the big business brains managed to fuck that up with half a century of cachet as the industry leader. It really should be, you know, it, it can't be harped on enough that this was venture capitalists buying an institution trying to replace all of the writers with AI then lying about the fact that they made up fake writers with fake AI-generated pictures, and when people didn't want to read terribly written AI-generated articles, canned the whole thing and said, oh, well, there's nothing else we can do about it. It, it is the worst of what venture capitalists do, and it's not the first time that's happened, and it won't be the last time, unfortunately. Yeah, let me let me just take a big old sip of coffee and check to see what's been happening with the Baltimore Sun this week. <laughs> I am uh, sorry about that, James. The Sun has been a rag for years. This is unfortunately it, it's the nail in the coffin, but the coffin had already been glued shut. 
But hey, folks, let's not end on that bummer. Let's take a second to thank you again, LJ. Uh, one last comment that I may make about this versus uh, when we got to talk with you last year. It's like you said during that time that you still very much, when you were doing appearances for anything, like wanted the account to speak for itself. And largely very much so what you're doing, but it has been really fun like getting to read the newsletter and getting to see like a little bit more of you just talking about it. And, and even if it's still talking about the account, like it is fun to hear your voice along with just seeing the images. So I've really enjoyed that. Hey, if people have enjoyed doing that with you today, is there anywhere in particular that they can uh, hear more of your thoughts and see more of your images? Yeah, so artbutmakeitsports.com. That's the Substack link. Uh, and then I think it's artbutsports is the handle on Twitter, and then Instagram, threads, blue sky. Threads is a funny little place. I just like, I just post the same stuff I post across platforms. But like threads, threads, like the, the account yeah. threads. It was like retweeting my, reposting my stuff on there. I was like, what? <laughs> I think they. What is it? What is the thread sports scene like? I don't use it, so I don't know. I just post to it, but okay. on my feed, on the feed of stuff, it's like lots of uh, like adult uh, film stars, but not like famous ones, like aspiring. Even though like my, <laughs> my Instagram algorithm is like art, food, and sports, like on my Instagram for you page, but threads is, you know, I don't know what they what they're pulling from there, but they... It probably has some work to do. Aspiring adult film stars is a really, really like complimentary like old, way of describing like, that. Like older women, not, I don't know. So it's like the pop-up ads that you would get on, you know, on certain websites. Yeah, it's like, I don't know if you saw it like Fred Katz posted earlier today, but uh, yeah, that kind of yeah. drill. Hot MILFs in your area. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah follow me on threads. It's a great yeah. place. <laughs> It sounds like it's a blast. This has been a blast to have you on. And I do also want to thank, uh, in addition to our very special guest, Xavier, and our co-host, Diaz, Craig, and all the coders behind him, and then our musical director, Don Ham, for that lovely theme music. Most of all, thank you, dear listener, for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week as we get back to our bread and butter with a fresh batch of guys to kick off season nine. So if you think that this new season would be a good time to maybe turn someone on to the show, if you want to check out some old episodes, hey, if you want to get the guys of the day every day, you can find those on Discord and Blue Sky, but all of that can be done if you check out the links at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Uh, and yeah, season nine. We hope that you will join us for that, and we hope that you will continue to join us. I will continue to be one of your hosts, James. I've been Xavier. Yeah, thanks for having me, LJ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess art would make it sports. And I've been Diaz, and as they always say, a guy in the hand is worth two in the bush. <laughs> My, my other favorite player I ever did a career like that. I had a 6'9", 350-pound quarterback in NCAA where, like, you, you come out of high school. Yeah. And I just named him Jaundice Johnson because I just – I thought that sounded like a cool name. Irregardless of what Jaundice actually is, I thought Jaundice Johnson just sounded you like a to, badass football name. You had to, like, spell Jaundice slightly different, I feel like, to get the full effect. Like J-W-N. Yeah, because someone heard jaundice and they're like two guys in waiting yep. who are like, Chlamydia would be such a beautiful name if it wasn't Chlamydia. <laughs>
Now, John, John, this does sound really nice, but yeah, John, this Johnson, I think we went to Kentucky and we turned them into a football school. I mean, we're in a brand new world. I, that's the number one thing that I think about the expanded playoff is like, there's going to be some new teams that just lock into, you know what? We can be an 11 seed every single year and aspire for absolutely nothing more. And there will be some schools that are fine with that. Like there's going to be, I feel like one new program in the next five years that just as this becomes an option, locks in forever. Like, okay, this is what we do. We are not here to win a championship. We are here to barely make the playoff every year. That is Delaware's aspiration, I feel. That is FBS Delaware's. I love it. I love it. They dream of the day that they just get their God. It's the Delaware-Michigan game. That's what it has to be. It has to be one seed Michigan against 12 seed Delaware or 16 seed Delaware. Just just get really into different shades of blue. 